KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. You know, it was really about us living day to day and living in those moments. And by doing that, you didn't get overwhelmed with the success. You took every game as it came. And, and then in 2012, you know, we start the first game of the season down one nothing at West Virginia. Top 15 team in the country, come back and win 2-1. to one. I think for our girls, that's when they knew that we were big time. And our guest this week is Paul Royal, who for the last two decades has been the head women's soccer coach at LaSalle University. And Paul, thanks so much for coming in the studio. Uh, Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. So as we are talking here early to mid-April recording this, what is life like for you? What's the focus? What are you kind of honing in on? You know, you start out in this business, uh, you know, you have a passion and love for the game. You know, and after a couple decades, you you realize the impact from a leadership standpoint that, you know, you can project onto these young student athletes, fellow assistant coaches that are ready to go out and take over the, the roles that I have, you know, in their profession. You know, it's it's been a wonderful journey. And I think there's still so much more left in the tank to keep helping change in a lot of these young players' lives. So right now, is it recruiting? <clears throat> Is it spring workouts? Like, what's kind of at the top of your list? Yeah, you know, too, it, it really has changed quite a bit. You know, recruiting's always been an ongoing thing, but now with the transfer portal, uh, a lot more international players, you know, coming in the mix last minute or, uh, you know, in the fall at the end of our season. So it's it's really a never-ending thing. We're in our off-season, so a lot of this is the development time, you know, where we'll have a few spring matches, um, giving a lot of the younger players a lot more opportunities on the field, you know, and bigger moments of games but it, it's I really enjoy a lot of this off season because it's 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 a great opportunity to develop stronger relationships with the players where you know in the fall you know when we're making tough decisions and affecting uh you know the happiness of some of these players when they're not playing or not playing as much as they'd like you know our role is is different in the fall season where you know we can sh- truly show the human element in the off season so we we've, we've really enjoyed this time with the group you mentioned the transfer <laughs> portal and obviously a ton of discussion about that when it comes to college basketball and and college football has it turned life upside down for women's soccer like it has those sports yeah it really has you know uh, and i i think you know it might have been a month or two ago it was about 18,000 student athletes th- across the board um, not just women's soccer, but, you know, it, it, it's given an element sometimes for us of surprise where we've, you know, kind of planned for our future and, you know, uh, a piece here, a piece there loses, uh, you know, their ground or what they're looking for with us and, and moves on. You know, and, and in a lot of senses, it's, it's, it's good for the kids where if there's not an ideal situation and they're looking for something bigger or better, it gives them that opportunity. You know, uh, I think the detriment of it is it gives them an easy pass to you know, kind of jump ship if if things weren't ideal. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, a lot of programs across the board will say, you know, even from the grad student, I think it's it's very beneficial for a lot of these grad students that want to go out and get a grad degree and have a year of eligibility left, especially with the COVID redshirt year that a lot of the kids got. You know, you see a lot of programs improving the lives of, you know, these, these kids that can hi- hire uh, their education level. Has this changed <clears throat> the way you approach the program and what I mean by that, like if you and I are talking 10 years ago and we're talking recruiting, I'm sure you probably got something that, well, I like our goalkeeper situation for the next two years. So let's start to look at sophomores in high school that can come in. And is it now much more kind of year to year? And 
is it not so much building as it is kind of constructing on the fly what your roster and what your core is going to look like? Yeah, that's a great question and great segment. You know, it really is. A couple of years ago, I never would have planned that. All right, you know, we're investing in four years for this position and this player. Now we really have to, you know, think outside the box from a more strategic level. That All right, who's next in line if this were to happen? You know, and even through injury. You know, a lot of mid-majors don't have as much depth or the quality of it, you know, throughout their roster as a lot of these Power 5 schools um, that are able to stockpile some of these players um, or wait, you know, wait for their opportunity. For us, we want to make sure that, you know, we still have the core of players, but we're, you know, from the last couple of years, you know, it's more of, okay, let's figure out if, you know, this player leaves, you know, how this replacement is happening. Um, because that's where I think the transfer portal and even international recruiting, uh, because they're on a different timetable than a lot of our, you know, U.S. club players. So it, it really has um, made us kind of relearn and uh, re-strategize about what our next moves will be if certain players or uh, systems of players move on. You mentioned that COVID year of mm-hmm. eligibility and Obviously, that has kind of changed things. I'm sure a lot of programs have kind of log jams of certain classes because of stuff like that. With all that, with the transfer portal, do you think things will, quote unquote, settle down in a couple of years? Or do you think this is kind of life for yeah, the foreseeable the, future? I, I really do. I think this is the new norm, you know, unless the NCA, you know, realizes that, you know, that, that it's not helpful for the student athletes in the long run. But they have modified some of the timelines of the transfer portal where it was kind of open last year. Now there's dates that they can enter it. Um, and then there's certain penalties if they're entering it at different times, you know, maybe having a city year, those kind of things. So it's really, uh, I think, become our new norm. So we have to kind of roll with it and, and be flexible with, you know, certain scenarios. Uh, but just to give you an example, too, my, I would say my first 18 years, I think we may have had maybe a total of five or six kids transfer. And in the last two years or a year and a half, more specifically, it might be 11 or 12. Wow. So it, it really has changed the landscape of college athletics. So let's talk about your journey. Growing up, was <clears throat> soccer always number one for you? Yeah, always. Yep, since five years old. Yeah. Were you, I know you goalie, but were you a goalie as a kid or were you just playing kind of wherever? So it's pretty cool story too, you know, and, and uh, the foresight of my father at the time, and he was one of the top pole vaulters in the country, you know, only about a foot off the world record at the time. And he had no idea what soccer was about. And he, you know, read books and, and tried to learn as much as he could because he saw that it was a strong passion for me. You know, one of the stories he always tells is, you know, all the practices and all the teams I was on. I never once, you know, complained about going to practice. And that's where he, I think he knew and had that insight of, all right, well, let, let's make the most of this. You know, let's give him every opportunity. And, and probably around freshman year, because I used to split, I was a forward and a goalkeeper, which is a rarity in these days. You know, it, it usually happens a lot, a lot earlier in their career. And come into my freshman year of high school, I actually was on varsity as a forward, but I was also a small player. I was maybe four foot 11, five foot could probably barely touch the crossbar back then, but had the athleticism, you know, to to do some different things on the field. And he he told me, he said, you, you know, this is the time in your career that you're going to have to make a choice. You know, do you want to be a field player or do you want to be a goalkeeper? Um, and then from that point on, I went all in with just fo- having all my focus as a goalkeeper, you know, and then went through high school, ended up switching high schools, uh, started at Millville High School my freshman year, 
uh, and then played at Archbishop Ryan here in Northeast Philadelphia for the last three years. So it was the greatest decision I, I made at a young young age. Another side note, because I think it was the maturity or the lack of maturity I had as a, as a young person. Uh, my parents, you know, purposefully kept me back in eighth grade. So I repeated eighth grade, and um, I think the skill set that I learned from you know those challenges is. You know, you, you see in this day and age, they have their friends and the comfort that they maintain along their journey. Uh, they don't have those challenges. And, you know, I didn't probably understand it at the time, but, you know, having to relearn and build new relationships with a whole new group, group of people and then transferring from a, you know, a really deep South Jersey town that's very small and, you know, a little bubble of its own into a Northeast high school at Ryan that had, you know, close to 3,000 students. So I think from a personality perspective and navigating relationships and, you know, figuring out who I would become, uh, it really helped me a lot. And to that point, is that two, three-year stretch kind of the watershed portion of your life? I think so. I really do. I think that's where I started really getting a lot of the internal drive and the hunger about what I wanted to do. And a lot of people don't know, too, you know, I was your prototypical ADHD kid and, and really wasn't diagnosed until probably my 40s. So. And then Malcolm Gladwell talks about, you know, using disadvantages towards your advantage. And, and I think had I not had that hunger and passion and love for playing and competing and, and trying to be the best I possibly could, I'm not sure what direction I would have found. When I look back now, it, it's pretty amazing that I was able to get a college degree and, you know, have all these out external challenges, you know, like the joke with, uh, you know, there's squirrels, oh, the, you know, that was me. And to pick a position like goalkeeper where you have to be ultra focused the whole time, or if you switch off, you could lose the game for your team. You know, it was pretty uh, interesting to, you know, lead that journey down that path and and make the most of it in my opportunities. Can I just ask and, you know, go as deep as you feel comfortable with being held back in eighth grade? Yeah. Like, I think it's one thing in elementary school, it's more fluid and, you know, but eighth grade, that is a tough age, I think, to have something like that happen. I mean, how difficult was that? Yeah, you know, I... I People have asked me that before, and I don't, I don't recall it ever being like life-changing for me, mm-hmm. you know, because I was always competing against older players or older guys in my neighborhood. Um, I was always trying to live up to, you know, these elite athletes and, and such. And, I, you know, I had a lot of trust in what my parents were doing. You know, I think they had great insight of the challenges that I was facing and that this would help me, you know. And, and to be fair, you know, we see a lot more adolescent in our college athletics now and, you know, in the freshman year. And I was truly still an adolescent when I was a freshman in college, but I had the structure. I had uh, two coaches, you know, Louis Bennett and Brian Tompkins at uh, Milwaukee that really invested a lot in me. I was, I, I would say I was very blessed just to be surrounded by people that had the best interest for my path. Cause I think if that were different, who knows how those experiences would have ended. What was it about soccer that just grabbed you? Yeah, it's a, I, I don't know if there's one thing I could pinpoint, but it, I, I was an ultra competitor. You know, I, I loved winning to a fault. And there was these advantages that soccer gave me that put me, you know, at peace in a lot of things. If you've ever seen me coach or if you've ever seen me play, you know, I'm very outward, almost borderline crazy in a lot of ways. And then in my everyday life, it's the complete opposite. You know, it's very calculated, calm. Um, so it brought out a lot of qualities in, in me from a leadership standpoint, you know, from my personality levels to flourish, you know, and to take more command and to be more assertive. And, 
you know, to believe in what I was putting the work in for. So you make the decision to goalie and you talk about how you need the focus and that was obviously a struggle. Like, could you almost feel it like a switch flipped once the game started? Like you weren't having those problems of looking around and seeing who's in the crowd, like stuff like that? not at all. Yeah. Did it amaze you even at that young age that you were able to, and was there any discussion in your head of like, why can't I do that? I don't know if I give myself that much credit. I don't know (laughs) if I was that intelligent, right? But yeah, it did. It was like, you know, athletes talk about going in the zone and, you know, when I stepped across those lines, it was like a whole different world for me. And even in practice, you know, I was, I always trained like I played in games and it, it really did. It was, I didn't realize it at the time, but it, it was where I needed to be. And that, that was my driving force on, you know, having tough conversations with my college coaches that, Hey, you, you keep up, you know, these grades or you miss classes and you do these things like this is not going to happen. And that, that trigger for me was like, Oh, well, I better start you know, ramping up my studies and focusing and getting the help and utilizing the resources that we have because I don't want to, you know, not have the opportunity to play. Having over, have to overcome, you know, dealing with ADHD as a youth, you know, being held back, switching schools in high school. I would imagine all these life experiences give you kind of emotional tools in a toolbox as a coach that really help and might not be available to all coaches, because I would guess you were able to empathize with players who are having issues that maybe aren't easily, not just they can't cash in on a cross or they're, they're not strong to the back post stuff like that. Do you feel that like your life experience? I agree. agree, Yeah. Yeah, totally. And And that's why I utilize a lot of, you know, the philosophies that I've built is coming from a lot of the experiences and being able to you know, the evolution of a lot of coaches is being able to walk in someone else's shoes, you know, being able to see through their eyes um, because they may have come through a lot of struggles as well. You know, and, and the stronger our relationships are, the more we as leaders can get the most out of them, you know, and help them find that journey, you know, that I was fortunate enough to find. You know, it's something I know that we talk a lot about in our society of, you know, finding that passion, you know, and it's very hard for people to find that. You know, I have two kids, two daughters, and our youngest loves cheerleading, competitive cheer. Uh, and it's great seeing her wanting to go to practice. She practiced for four hours a day and she loves it. You know, where an older one hasn't found that, that niche yet. So it's, it's difficult for a lot of young people to truly figure out what that is. But when they do, I think it's the most rewarding. Uh, and then if you have the opportunity, like I've been blessed to have a career out of it, you know, that's unheard of. You know, even, you know, 15, 20 years ago, people would ask me what I do for a living. And, you know, after I was done playing professional ball, I, yeah, I'm a college coach. What else do you do? You know, they, they didn't understand that, you know, you can't actually make a living doing it. Um, and early in the years, you know, you're not, you're not making a, a ton of money doing it. But, you know, it, it becomes a grind. But the grind is well worth it because of the people you're impacting. As a goalie, what made you good skill set wise? What were you able to do that maybe was a little better than other goaltenders. Yeah, I, I think just my role athleticism. You know, I, I probably had a vertical jump of 36 or 38, depending on what time of my career it was. I had a mentality that uh, I would never give in, never give up. Uh, almost, I wanted those people to challenge me, you know, and, and had the opportunity. I was in the uh, New, Jer- New York, New Jersey Metro Stars camp uh, with Tony Miola, you know, a legendary goalkeeper for the U.S. national team, Tim Howard, who's by far the best goalkeeper we've ever had in this country. And I was their third call-up goalkeeper for that. And I think when I was in that environment, I knew, you know, how much of a legend both of them were. But I had that mindset that, you know, I was just as good, if not better than them. And I wasn't, but 
that's a whole other story, you know, but I had to have that belief. And I think that's where being, having the athleticism and having successes, you know, there, there's a theory, you know, the art of elevation, you know, when you're younger, a lot of people are giving you these shout outs and parents are telling you how well you're doing and you're reading your name in the newspaper and people like yourself are throwing your name out on radio that lifts people up and it has them become uh, almost a larger person than they really are. And I think that was what, when I look back at my career, even as a coach, and I remember speaking with you probably in 2012 about one of our NCAA games against Virginia. It was one of the best college teams in the country. And it might have come off borderline arrogant, but the confidence that I had in our group, yeah, we're going to beat them. You know, and I think that when you can control that mindset, you know, a lot of good things are going to come. Are you always going to get to the top now? But I think a lot of great things are going to evolve from just having that that high sense of belief in yourself and the people around you. We need to take a break. We will have more with LaSalle University head women's soccer coach Paul Royal right after this. This is one-on-one. And we are back on one-on-one, continuing our conversation with LaSalle University head women's soccer coach Paul Royal. You mentioned Milwaukee for college. You go to University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. How do you end up there? Yeah, so one of our uh, club teammates here in New Jersey played for Jersey Shore Boca, um, and we were – you know, one of the top teams in the country, I think 99% of our players went division one. Um, and he was a year ahead of me. So he went out to Milwaukee and, you know, they were top 10 in the country at the time. And I was, I was really, I guess I, at that time I was very selfish because some other good schools were looking at me, but I might've had to wait a couple years for my opportunity. You know, I wanted to go to a school that I had the opportunity right away to play. Um, and they coincidentally, they graduated a senior goalkeeper, even in the foresight, I was a, a homebody, you know, I, I did everything with my parents, you know, everything was for them, you know, it was about pleasing them. And for me to make that jump a thousand miles across the country was probably unheard of, you know, cause I had some local schools here that were looking at me. Um, and I probably could have just chosen the easier way, but for some reason, I'm not sure why I felt the comfort when I went out to Milwaukee and, and honestly, it was the greatest decision I ever made. And, you know, I met the, the most important person in my world. And forever is my wife, you know, she's from Wisconsin and had I never made that big jump, you know, you don't know what your life would have looked like then. What was the transition? Like you talk about being a homebody and and stuff and how much did the going from Millville high to Archbishop Ryan, just that experience of being dropped in a new pool help with college? Oh, it was night and day from a small town of of Millville and into, uh, you know, Philadelphia where people everywhere and hanging around with a bunch of knuckleheads at times, you know, you see, figured out choices that you got to make and decisions. Uh, so it was, it was really a whirlwind of, of a change, but it helped me grow, you know, and figure out ways that I can improve uh, as a person. You know, it really fine-tuned a lot of the integrity that my parents built in me uh, of making decisions, having opportunities to choose, you know, a bad decision or, you know, shy away from that. Um, and that, that's probably what gave me you know, the courage or the bravery to, to take the chance to go to Milwaukee. And I know I wouldn't have succeeded at Milwaukee if it weren't for Brian Tompkins and Louis Bennett, because they invested in the person that I could become, not who I was at the time. I probably changed a lot of, or created a lot of gray hairs for them. Definitely changed a lot of rule books because I was always teetering on the line and, but they helped show me the way, you know, and I, and I give them a lot of credit of where I am in my life because of their investment and the time that they spent, the effort. You know, I had to meet with my assistant coach every day at noon. And it was simple questions of, are you going to class? You know, what are you doing with your work? Um, and looking back, that's a lot of responsibility. You know, it, it's a lot of micromanaging 
someone that probably shouldn't need to be micromanaged at that age. But, you know, I think it, it was the investment that paid off. Uh, and that's the things that a lot of coaches, we don't always see, but it's sometimes that it, 10 years later or 15 years later, that thank you, like, hey, I realized the impact that you made is why we do what we do. You know, and I think that's, that's why I've stayed in this business as long as I have, because I, I truly love, you know, seeing who these players become and these people become. And then when they have their families and going to weddings and, you know, that's, that's the whole for, full circle of what we do. What are your favorite soccer memories? from Milwaukee? Like if I ask you to think back to your playing career there, are there one or two games, moments, bus rides, whatever, that just jump right to the top? Yeah, well, we, I mean, we were we were team in and out of the top 25. I think it might have been my junior year. You know, I would show up early at practice and take free kicks, and I was a goalkeeper, so, you know, we weren't players that were taking free kicks. But there was players like Jorge Campos and some of these other goalkeepers in the world that uh, Rene Higuita that, that would be just masterminds with free kicks. So I... I've ended up convincing our coaches to put me on, you know, free kicks. And, and the joke was, you know, I would either knock the guy out in the wall and they would have to stop the clock anyway, or the ball would go 100 miles over to goal. So it, we wouldn't have to worry about it. So I think it might have been our conference semifinal. We ended up playing Notre Dame in the final, but it was the fourth overtime. And I, the coach, I don't know why they would have said it, you know, because I know that they had me taking some free kicks otherwise, but I went up and took the free kick. Uh, I would say from an individual level, that was one of my highlights in college was, you know, scoring a game winner. And it was a sudden death game uh, that put us into the final. So I think that was a, a really um, great high moment. And, and it's funny, too, because there's no video proof. Like now it would be all over the place because it started raining. So our film crew took the took the film down. But it was it was it was quite a memory. And to do it with our teammates, you know, we were a really close knit family um, and they preached you know, us really working for one another. And we played a unique style. You know, we're very up-tempo. We gave up some goals here and there, but it was it was an entertaining brand. Um, and I think that that was what was exciting about my career is, you know, being in a lot of big games. You know, when I was a freshman, we played IU, and they were fresh off of Final Four the year before. Those games are what, what made me want to go to college and, and take those next steps. When does the idea of playing pro soccer come together? Is it something was always just the yeah. next logical step or were the, was there a moment that crystallized it? No, I, I would say even as far back as, you know, freshman, sophomore, juniors, year in high school, you know, that's where I wanted to be. You know, too, it was, it was tough. There was so many elite players out of Philly or out of New Jersey and uh, they would almost just go to college for a year or two and then go in and, and play pro indoor pro, and pro outdoor because that was really the only way you could make a living doing it. You had to do six months in indoor and six months outdoor. And fortunately I had good, you know, leaders among me and people that were guiding me because that was in my thought process. Well, I'll just go to, you know, college for a little bit. And the importance of getting that degree and, and finishing something that you started was something that my college coaches preached. And, you know, looking back, it was, the, it was the greatest thing, you know, because it gave me opportunities that, you know, the professional game would still be there. Um, however, your education isn't always going to be there. Those opportunities might dwindle or the people signing the, or offering the contracts might have the upper hand over you because you, could, you can't, can't just walk away from, you know, the game not having a college degree. So I think it was, it was very important, you know, for me to stay the course and to figure out like, okay, that I, I really do need this structure in my life because it was more about the internal growth of me as a person, not me as an athlete. You mentioned the Metro stars. So this is, you know, that opportunity, these, this is early MLS. Yeah. This is probably a completely different animal than the MLS totally. that has kind of taken over the world here. Now, you also NPSL, you're with the kicks. 
how difficult was the grind of some of these leagues? Because, you know, this was not real glamorous, yeah. I'm sure. I mean, love of the game and everything, but you're not, I would imagine, and in some cases you probably might have had better facilities in college than some of these places you played pro. Like, what, what was the grind like? Yeah, no, it was. It really was. But even leading to that, Coming out of college, the owners that Milwaukee Rampage was, you know, Brian McBride and Tony Sana were, were playing with that. And Chris Kelderman and future MLS guys were on that squad. And, and the ownership group with the Wave and the Rampage weren't loaning players back and forth. So Milwaukee wasn't necessarily a city that I could stay in and play indoor half the year and play outdoor half the year. So coincidentally, my wife and I got married right around uh, the summer of 97 and we made a commitment to each other like that our relationship would take precedence over our career at that time. And it wouldn't be us, you know, living in a city for six months and then moving to another city or I go and live that first year that I was finished uh, college, you know, was playing in the USISL, which was, you know, basically the second division under MLS. And I was here in, in New Jersey for the summer. and My wife was in Wisconsin working. And I think we we made that decision that we were going to make our decisions collectively. And when I was had the opportunity from the Milwaukee Wave to trade me to Philadelphia, I knew that there was, you know, within, you know, an hour or away, uh, there was the Hershey Wildcats and then the New Jersey Stallions and the South Jersey Barons you know, all minor league clubs, but it gave me the opportunity to really set our our grassroots here in South Jersey. Um, and I think that that's, from that point on, you know, it was a grind. I remember working, you know, substitute teaching, you know, throughout the whole day and then training at night in Lakewood, New Jersey at, at getting home at, a, at midnight and then driving for, you know, a month and a half back and forth to Hershey, which was an hour and 45 minutes, uh, six days a week to to have that experience. So, and when I look back, you know, that's also given me the hunger that, you know, there's no obstacle that can't be overcome. You know, if you're willing to really be disciplined and, and have sights on those goals, there's going to be tests that are being thrown at you. Do you want to do this? And that's what really establishes a lot of success for a lot of us when these challenges are made and everybody has an easy out, you know, and, and I'm lucky that and, I, and not even knowing, I just felt that that was what you were supposed to do. You know, you're supposed to drive an hour, 45 minutes every day and you know, get home late and wake up early and, and grind it out. But looking back, you know, that's the stuff I really appreciate now. You know, we weren't, my wife and I weren't making a lot of money. We were fortunate we had a duplex and, you know, we were able to survive and, and make it through the each each week. But it was really for the, the bigger picture of, you know, where we wanted to be when we're raising a family. Was it fun? Like the soccer oh, yeah. part? Yeah. Was, I mean, despite everything, it still was still it. fun. Yep. I loved it. It was always a challenge and, you know, I was always trying to live up to the expectation that I set for myself. So I always enjoyed it. From a goalkeeper standpoint, I'm fascinated as someone who played both outdoor and indoor. From a field standpoint, it is a completely different animal. Like the skill sets, I don't want to say they don't translate, but certain things that you can get away with being half and half, you know, being eh, outdoor are going to get magnified indoor. From a goalie standpoint, how does life change? What skill sets do you really need to lean in? as an indoor goalie that maybe not as much outdoor, or is it pretty much the same animal? No, the, I mean, the, the, the quickness, you know, the, the, it's almost, you could almost evaluate what the processing of quarterbacks, NFL quarterbacks have to go through where there's, you know, four or five options being thrown at you and you have to make millisecond decisions where in outdoor, you know, there's a lot more tactical understanding. You can solve problems well before they become problems, you know, and, and, in indoor, I was more of a career backup. In outdoor, I was a career starter. 
So even from a mindset perspective, you know, when, when your team knows that you're, you know, the big show, you know, they're going to put you on that pedestal and you're, they're going to lift you up confidence wise even more. Um, when you're that second, you know, second option, you got to go to work, you got to put the work in, you know, you got to do the extra studying and, and effort in your training to give yourself the edge, you know, cause it's not coming uh, from external sources as much as it would be, you know, when you're the show. So I think that, that mental part of it uh, definitely challenged me, you know, when, when you're used to, you know, being endorsed by your teammates to, you know, and, and fortunately I was behind two of the best goalkeepers that ever played in indoor, Victor Nagara and Pete Pappas. So they taught me a lot just from observing or, you know, through their training. Uh, so that helped me become even a better outdoor goalkeeper, you know, seeing how they dealt with the pressure, seeing how their decision-making, how, how they had to lead others. Did being a backup, <clears throat> did dealing with ADHD make that even more challenging? Because I can understand when you're the guy, you're able to zero in. But when it's much more nebulous and well, I might play this week, I might not, I would imagine it, it could be easy to just kind of lose focus yeah, there. Was totally. that an extra challenge? No, I don't think so. I, I, even as a backup, I went into every game thinking I was going to play and I was going to start. And I think maybe I give a lot of that credit to my coaches that, you know, were preparing for the opportunity. You know, you don't know when these opportunities are to come, so you better be ready. And I was also then I had to be the big cheerleader. You know, I was a rah-rah guy, crazy enthusiasm. So that was my role. You know, I knew that I could stay focused and stay engaged by, you know, hyping players up if they're if they come off and, you know, off one of their shifts and they weren't feeling great. You know, going and talking with them. So that helped me stay engaged with the, you know, the ebbs and flows of a game. When does the idea of coaching enter the arena? Is it something that was always in the back of your mind? And because you talked about yeah. the impact your coaches at Milwaukee had on you, did the wheel start turning then? Or is it something that the grind becomes a little too much, a little tired of driving to Hershey, tired of driving to Lakewood? How can I stay in the game, but maybe at a different level? Yeah, definitely. I would have. I don't think I would have ever envisioned myself as a coach, probably because it was so short-sighted that I just thought I was going to play forever. I would say it was probably, you know, when I might have been in my second or third year as a pro. Um, and then I, I honestly, I probably was then finally mature enough to understand what was really going on in the world, 25 years old or 24 years old. And that light bulb went off. And the, the way the world works is, is crazy sometimes where – you know, the top assistant at Villanova at the time got another opportunity and left just before preseason. So uh, Ann Clifton, a head coach at the time, uh, was kind of scrambling, reaching out to a bunch of contacts. And coincidentally, we're in the Philly area. You know, it was more probably for her, it was more out of desperation. Like, all right, yeah, we'll take you. You, you know what goalkeeping is. We'll have you come in. But when I started doing that and, and I was a really, I was part-time, maybe making $1,500 a year as the top assistant at mm -hmm. Villanova at that time. But I went all in, you know, I was able to still play pro and make money. And, you know, my wife and I had a joint income at the time. So we were able to survive the day to day. And I just went all in as, as a full-time coach. And the head coach at the time really helped me out a lot. You know, she basically put a lot of her camp business and, and paid me quite a bit of money out of that. Uh, so it, it kept me in the business that I wasn't having to look for, you know, another dream coaching job at the time. Uh, because I was still following really my dreams of making the MLS at the time. But each year, you know, it, it just kept evolving and I kept gaining a, a greater hunger for being in that lifestyle. So you play up until what, about 2001? Mm -hmm. Yep. You're coaching and playing. What's the thought process that it's time to stop playing? Was it a physical 
thing? Was it, I really want to focus on coaching? And once that decision is made, how comfortable are you with it those first couple of years when you're still in shape yeah. and, you know, you never know, phone rings or maybe you hear, you know, you're talking to people, so-and-so is looking for a goalie in this lit. Like, yeah. what was that like, that transition away from playing? Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, you know, I think it was two-part, too. You know, knowing where my wife and I were, you know, we we were – talking about starting a family. And then I really, I, I, I grasped a huge love for seeing the impact that we had on student athletes. You know, I was still probably dabbling in some men's leagues and things like that. So I was still getting maybe my fix of playing. But then the funny story about that too, is when I was done playing goalkeeper at that level, I would only play on the field anymore. Cause I'm like, I'm done with people firing balls at me. I'm done with crashing my body all over the place, you know? And even teams that uh, I would join, I was like, make sure you tell people that I'm not a goalkeeper, you know, cause I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> But I think it was in two part really was, you know, the hunger of seeing, you know, the impact that we could make as a coaching staff. Uh, that And that's when it, I, you know, was pretty much all in and, and Villanova was, was doing everything they could to help, you know, us be positioned better as a program and even the funding for myself, you know, they were, you know, and the biggest in its, in its whole was, was trying to mandate, you know, having the footprint of women's soccer be a higher level. So, uh, and then I think it was maybe our third or fourth year we're making NCAA tournaments. So, you know, and you see that success from all the hard work these kids were putting in, then it was so rewarding, you know? So that's, I think when I was like, yep, this is what I want to do. We need to take a break. We will have more with Paul Royal right after this. This is one-on-one. And we are back continuing our conversation with Paul Royal, head women's soccer coach at LaSalle university. So around 2003, (laughs) the opportunity at LaSalle comes is it something that you make the decision that I think I would like to take the step to take over a program or is there an opening, a conversation and you start to kind of pivot the way you're thinking as this could be right for me? Yeah, no, I think it was, it was the opportunity, you know, and I, and I felt I was ready in, in certain senses to take that next step. But to be honest, I mean, I was scared out of my mind, you know, of having that responsibility where, you know, a leader like Ann made it look easy in a lot of ways, you know, and I knew that I was a very talented assistant coach because I got a lot out of the players, but I saw how the, sometimes the head coach player relationships weren't always as welcoming as an assistant coach player relationship. So I was afraid, you know, I was afraid and I, and I might've been afraid, you know, of failing more so. Um, And that's what I did my first year. It was, it was bad. (laughs) You know, it was a program that I took over that was on the upswing and I completely knocked all the pieces down and, you know, had to figure out, all right, well, how do I do this better? You know, I can't be emotional. I can't be, you know, so erratic and inconsistent with my behaviors with these players. I got to show them, you know, a more calming, higher level of, uh, of drive and, and consistency. And coincidentally, uh, you know, our season usually starts at mid, late August. I still have the game ball of my first win, which was October 12th. So if you can imagine going from a team that was, you know, top 25, I was also coaching the Philadelphia Charge at the time, who was one of the best pro teams in in the country coming off playing pro and even playing. I think I played over 30 and we lost in the national final that year. I hadn't lost that many games and all those other aspects that I did in the first two months of my coaching career. You know, so it was a very humbling experience for me, you know, but that they, they say that, you know, to experience the next level of greatness or what you're in stride for, you need to go through that humility. 
you know, and I needed to be grounded. You know, I, I thought everything was just going to be easy and just let your talent follow and pull every, everybody else with you. And it posed a lot of challenges for me. Fortunately, at the time, you know, I had a great assistant, Dan Manella, with me. Um, and we sat down and evaluated, all right, well, what do we need to do? You know, I was fortunate I had one of our former players at uh, Villanova, goalkeeper uh, Chrissy Dolan, come over and, and join the staff. And what they did for me, sitting me down and say, hey, you, you shouldn't be doing this. You, you need to do this. You know, your behaviors of this. We all need people like that that can tell us the honest truth, even as, as at the expense of I was not happy with them for a couple of weeks, but I needed to hear it. You know, because that was really probably what the players were saying that I needed to be. And I, and I would imagine a lot of coaches go through that, you know, and you got to be honest. You got to be a good listener to what the people around you are saying, because that's the only way you're going to improve. How long do you think it took you to kind of know what you didn't know as far as everything that goes into? Because it's so much when yeah. you take over, it's so much more than just the games. The games are, I would imagine, almost the easiest part because it's kind yeah. of what comes naturally and it's what you're used to. Like, how long did it really take you? I don't even mean success. I just mean get your arms around everything that it took to be a head coach. It had to be three or four years. And a lot of it was the psychology of people, you know, understanding and reading what we could do to get the most out of them. And I think the evolution of me as a coach was just becoming a better manager of people. It wasn't the X and O's. You know, that was easy. Um, It wasn't the motivation getting players to work harder. You know, that was easy. It was really how can we get the most out of them? How can – we make them feel as invested as we are. You know, how can we make them feel uh, that they're just as an integral part of this program as our best player? Um, and that was something that I was very naive and blind to um, in my earlier years. Do you remember, is there a moment when you felt like you arrived as a head coach? Yeah, there was a couple moments. Uh, we had an incredible class in 2006, and uh, Allie Kenny, who's Allie Nick, now is head coach at NGIT, you know, they were such a hungry and competitive group and, and they really changed our mindset. You know, they raised the standard and everything was about being better tomorrow. And when you have leaders like that, they can really make us look great. And I think we had some clashes and, and a lot of that was because, you know, I didn't manage, you know, the groups better because when you're dealing with freshmen, sophomore, junior, seniors, they're, they're all in different wavelengths of their life, you know, and then if you have a group that's has very strong personalities that are pulling the team. Uh, we obviously hope that they're pulling the team in the right direction. That doesn't always occur, you know, and I think it's our job to kind of uh, maneuver them or reroute them to get them back into the level that we can go. But then when we brought in the, our class in 2010, that was, you know, the golden era of our program. I think we had six or seven freshmen that year that were starting playing valuable minutes. We lost in the A-10 semifinal with basically a lot of freshmen carrying us. So we knew something on the horizon was, was coming. And that's when it was, it was just so much of a joy for us, you know, because we were challenging players and they were responding. We were setting high expectations and these were high achieving kids. We were getting highest GPAs in, in LaSalle athletics and also, you know, winning uh, A-10 championships. So it was, it was really fun seeing the evolution of a lot of those players because they grew into the best version of themselves at that time of their lives. I'm curious with that group, you know, because you go to the NCAA tournament, you win eight tens, golden era, really. Like as you're putting the pieces together for that group, is are, are there moments when you're starting to think like, and I mean like the recruiting process early in practice that, huh? Well, this, yeah, I can see we're not there yet, but boy, if this comes together, yep. this could be a lot of fun. Like, could you see it progressive? Oh, yeah. It was like overnight as well. 
It really was. This group was so hungry. Anything we ever set for them, they tried to attain. But it was. It was and, and it was almost tangible. Like you could feel it in every practice, you know. You don't have a lot of women's practices that, you know, you got to kind of break up almost fights, you know, and that's the kind of group we had. We had kids that were, uh, you know, willing to train like it was the World Cup final in just a simple practice. So we had to manage that from our perspective. And it was almost probably similar to coaching a lot of the men's teams where, you know, you're dealing with some some bigger egos, you know. So it, and I recall that from coaching the two pro teams that we did, it was it wasn't necessarily managing a lot of the talent because that was there. It was really, you know, defining roles, clearly explaining what we expect out of people um, and managing the egos, you know, having those side conversations, you know, having more team meetings or workshops, you know, about what we need to continue to focus on, you know, the bigger picture. And that's what we really, our mantra really was about being one. You know, it wasn't just because, you know, Renee Washington or Kelsey Haycook could score all the goals and become All-Americans. You know, it was, you know, the Dominique Penentes that were coming in off the bench and in important games. When we had trust in everybody, then everybody excelled, you know, and everybody was part of this great family, whether they were playing 90 minutes or not playing. And I think that's what really separated that group and that era of our program. They were hungry people, but they knew that there's a bigger, a bigger picture that they were shooting for. How does high level success hit differently as a player and as a coach, is either one more satisfying or is it just a different type of satisfaction? Yeah, it's definitely satisfying. You know, even when you have teams that have a lot of talent and underachieve, you know, that that really is disheartening. You have a team that's not as talented and overachieve. You know, that's as rewarding as it is with the teams in that era where, you know, they were super talented and they were achieving great things. So it is great seeing the journey. But what we really are in search for is, you know, can we overachieve or even if if it's a great group like 11 12 13 14 and even 17 can we just achieve you know because sometimes that's a hard thing putting all the pieces together but that's it's it's crazy when you're going through those seasons and 2011 we were undefeated and all we focused on was the next day we never once mentioned about any rankings national rankings and we were Probably for half the season, over half the season, we were nationally ranked. We kept everybody on task about what they needed to do in those moments, not about the glitz and glamour of, you know, them getting shout outs on Twitter or whatever. You know, it was really about us living day to day and and living in those moments. And by doing that, you didn't get overwhelmed with the success. You know, you didn't look into the future like, oh, we have to do this now. You took every game as it came. and, And then in 2012, you know, we start. The first game of the season, down one nothing at West Virginia, top fifteen team in the country, come back and win two to one. I think for our girls, that's when they knew that we were big time, that we could do so much. Because you, you got to have good results if you're going to really project this greatness, and yeah, we can accomplish great things. But if they're not, you know, doing it, then they're not building that belief either. So I think that was a big turn in our program. Mentioned twenty years at LaSalle. Was there a point? where there was the conscious decision or discussion with your family, like this is where I'm going to hang the shingle out for long-term or is it kind of one of those where you start having success, you start building and you're not thinking like, wow, I've been here 10 years and you kind of look up at the calendar and you're like, Oh my goodness. Like that's really something like, where does it kind of fall? Yeah. I mean, obviously there were some tough decisions that we had to make as a family, you know, cause I was, you know, offered ACC job, big 10 job, you know, some big East opportunities. But I think when push came to shove, LaSalle offered me the quality of life I was looking for at that time. You know, I knew we could do some great things. I wasn't in search for winning a national championship. You know, I didn't need 
you know, greener pastures. I knew that we could recruit a certain type of individual that was, you know, blue collar, that was hardworking. We had all the support from our administration at LaSalle. You know, I remember an email came across from the University of Washington that they wanted us to come out and they'll give us a guarantee to play against Portland and them. And like our administration, you know, we're under budget constraints, but all right, can we make this work? Yeah. We want you to play against the best teams in the country. So they afforded a lot of great opportunities for my family and I, and, you know, even from our brother, Michael, who was a president at the time at LaSalle, you know, it was a family. You know, we would have conversations in passing, you know, um, when Colleen Hanich was there, we would go to her house for dinners as a, as a team. So it was, it was something that you don't see. It was very unique. And I, and I think that's, that was really what made it very clear and evident for me that this is where I need to be, that, you know, we're going to have down seasons, but when I can spend time with my, my kids' lives, and not be so consumed with if I don't win this season, you know, I'm not going to have a job or a livelihood. That was a big thing for me. I want to be actively involved, you know, as a father, you know, above being a great coach. The most important thing to me is being a greater father or a greater husband. And sometimes when you're so consumed with your profession, you forget about those little moments. Um, and that's not who I wanted to be. So that's why, you know, LaSalle provided the opportunities that it made it, it made it a very easy choice for me. Favorite part of what you do in coaching? I think dealing with the student athletes every day and seeing them come in as one person and one athlete, you know, with the ideals that maybe they're bringing in and leading this, you know, leaving as a, this amazing, young, you know, high self-esteem, high self-confidence individual. You know, I get the greatest joy of seeing that. You know, I see a lot of that in what they're doing in their careers. You know, they're willing to do all these hard things that nobody else is, you know, and I, and I think our and it's not me as an individual. It was, it's the environment that has been created by these individuals. You know, the student athletes have created our environment. We just kind of try to steer it in the right direction. And when these girls buy into that, there's some wonderful things that they have out of life. You know, and that's really what our purpose is. is you know, when they go out into the real world, you know, we have them for those four years. It's their next 40 years that they should be looking for that fulfillment. Paul Royal, thanks so much for taking the time and coming in. Uh, great stuff. Thank you very much. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank LaSalle University head women's soccer coach Paul Royal for coming in studio, being our guest this week. Now, if you like the show, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.